I still remember it like it was yesterday. I was seven, almost eight years old, and I could not understand multiplication. I hated those tables, man. Anybody else? Were you guys there? Anybody else not a math brain? My wife is a math genius, and so to this day, I still feel inadequate in the math department. But I could try as hard as I could, and I couldn't seem to grasp how multiplication worked. I remember sitting on the couch and looking at those cards that have the, the different uh, uh, multiplication tables and trying to memorize them, but nothing was working until that one moment. You guys know what I mean. That moment where something suddenly comes to the front of your mind and you have that aha, that epiphany where you suddenly understand something that has been held back for a while. To this day, I cannot remember what that was for the multiplication table. Something my mom said, something my teachers said. But something clicked for me, and I started to remember them and understand what was going on with multiplication. It was as if, as if all of it just clicked. And with every step of math, and really just in education in general, all of us have those, those uh, uh, aha moments. Well, for me personally, I had that same moment a few years ago when I started to really understand the idea of covenant in the Bible. Now, there's an entire theology named after it, covenant theology versus dispensational theology. I won't geek out on that too much. But I had grown up in a theology that I just really felt like I had to kind of twist and bend some of the puzzle pieces to get them fit, to fit in the overall understanding of the Bible. The more I studied the Bible, the more this understanding uh, almost eluded me. I couldn't quite get all the pieces to fit. And then one day, it clicked with this idea of covenant. Covenant is used as a backbone around which the flesh of the scriptural story has been woven. And it allowed me to click into a full understanding of all of scripture once I understood that backbone. I definitely do not have it all figured out. I don't stand here today saying that I am a Bible expert by any stretch of the imagination. But at the same time, in that moment, it was like with the multiplication tables. Suddenly, so much more made sense. And this morning, we come to the third part of our series on why Mission Fellowship has changed in structure with regards to covenant membership. And today, we will begin to focus on this topic of covenant because I believe that it is so core, not only to the changes we're making, but to understanding God's design, and I believe to understanding God's gospel and his purpose for you. And so this phrase that I've been tossing around for a while that has been new to many of us, covenant membership, and another one, covenant community, we're going to talk about that today to try and answer some questions. And the first question that we're going to base this uh, teaching off of this morning is this, how does covenant membership bring about obedience in the life of a Christian? How does covenant membership bring about obedience in the life of a Christian? The last two weeks, we've tried to help guide you through the thought process and motivation behind why the leadership of this church has felt that it's needed to change. And two weeks ago, we answered the question, why did Mission Fellowship even need to change? And you can go listen to that in the last week's online to get those uh, filled in. At the core, it came down to the realization that we, as the leadership of this church, needed to be obedient in leading and structuring this community in a way that takes all of the commands of Scripture into account. Not just the ones we like, not just the ones that feel right, but all of the commands of Jesus and the apostles. And we realized that we are not responsible for any other church, any other group of people. And so we wanted to take seriously the call to lead this church as faithfully as we can. Then last week we asked the question, what part does the church play in bringing about obedience in the life of a Christian? And to answer that, we talked about the definition of a church. And the premise behind my answers 
was that in a needed effort to help people realize the necessity of a personal relationship with Jesus, the church has inadvertently made Christianity a singularly individualistic exercise. The heart has been right. You have to have a personal relationship with Jesus, and that is absolutely true. But in overemphasizing that, we've brought down the idea that Christianity is both individualistic and corporate or communal. And this is unfortunate because the walk of a disciple requires both for personal transformation. You have to have corporate encouragement. You have to have corporate exhortation and accountability in that transformation. And so we took a deep look at that last week as we defined the phrase, the church. And we'll be stepping into that more next week as we talk about the practical aspects of covenant membership and congregational authority. Now, in laying these things out to you, we've begun to show you the first layer of thoughts and of Scripture that has brought our leadership to this place of understanding, that we needed to make some structural changes, we need to make some changes in the way we relate to each other and love each other, and core to all of this, guys, is the idea of covenant. Everybody say covenant. Before I get too far into this, I want to again emphasize, and hear me please, covenant membership is a secondary issue. So if you disagree with me at the end of today, as I've said for the last two weeks, it's okay. I just ask that you wrestle with what I'm about to present just as the leadership team has had to do. So let me begin by discussing the phrases I keep using, covenant community and covenant membership. I want to first show you this. You can write this down. The biblical basis for covenant community and covenant membership. And the way we're going to do this, the way we're going to piece this apart, is I'm first going to take on the idea of the biblical basis for the word community. The biblical basis for the word community. One of the things I have found in Christendom over the, over the years, and I haven't lived a terribly long life, but what I have seen is a resistance to adapt the truth of Scripture to the fluidity of reaching a culture as their language changes. For example, in Burkina Faso, to go to the people, the pastors, and teach them the idea that by forgiving their sins, Christ makes them white as snow, you have to adjust what you're saying. Most, if not all of the pastors from the bush, have never seen snow, and they literally do not know what it is. It's a foreign concept. So what you have to do is you have to talk about it differently there to get the same point across. They have a different culture due to geography. And sometimes culture comes from geography, but even within our own geography, sometimes different cultures come because of chronology and generations. And one of the biggest things that's broken my heart as I've pastors, pastored is to see generations unwilling to adapt their language to assist the newest generation to step up into discipleship. We must take the differences into account when we're attempting to communicate the gospel. The truth of the gospel never, ever changes. But the way we communicate it does, depending upon geography and generation and culture. And so while our name is Mission Fellowship, very few people use the word fellowship anymore. Folks, look around. How young is our church? Very young. And I don't say that to make anyone uh, above 40 feel like the outcasts. We need more 
older wise people. Older folks, please, get older people to come here. But here's the caveat. We need them to be empathetic to the fact that they might speak a different language than most of our church. And I'm trying to pastor both generations. And so this idea of fellowship, for example, isn't one we use. So to capture this idea, in in our current culture, we use the word community. And for some reason, that actually rubs the wrong way with some Christians. But let me show you where I get it from. Turn with me to Acts chapter 2, 42, if you're not there already. And we're going to look at just a very short set of verses here. Acts 2, 42 through 44. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. Now, the word fellowship is used there, right? So why shouldn't we use it? Well, uh, the Bible doesn't dictate culture, unfortunately. I wish it did. We've tried in America, but it doesn't work that way. So even though it uses the word fellowship there, let's take a look at what the original language is. Because if you really want to go to what the Bible says, then you guys should stop speaking English and we should all start speaking Greek and Hebrew. Okay? Here's what the Greek words are. The Greek word there for common at the end of verse 44 is the word koinos. Okay? Everybody say koinos. It is the root of the English word in verse 42, the word fellowship, which is the Greek word koinonia. Everybody say koinonia. You see the, the, the root there? Koinos, koinonia. Okay? And so what the word fellowship actually means in a very wooden, literal translation is this. It means common unity. Common unity. Does that sound like an English word that we have? Community. Okay? Now, this is after the church has ballooned to 3,000 plus people, and the church is starting to take shape. And what identified them was their priority of living out a life of marked Uh, a life marked by constant worship in everything, not just in singing, but in everything, and by their community of generosity and love. They were fulfilling with their lives what Jesus called them to in John 13, that the world will know us as his disciples by our love one for another. And so this idea was that they had common unity. The word communicate, okay? Communicate means that we have a common language. To take communion is to celebrate the the fact that we are in community with Christ and with one another. We have a common union in Jesus' death, resurrection, enthronement, and eventual return. So this is why I use the word community so much. Don't throw it out just because non-believers use it to discuss their online community or their fitness community or their brewing community or their whatever, right? Don't throw it out. It's the best word in our current culture to describe a group of people that have something in common. The difference with the community of the church is that we have Christ and his kingdom in common. Amen? Okay. So there's community. So why do I throw in this word covenant? Well, because it's fun to do, right? Covenant everything. It's a trend. No, it's actually not. The reason I use covenant is because it's very, very important to understand that the community is not just a community in general. When we say that we have a community in Jesus, we often forget that the whole thing that Jesus instituted that community with is something called the new covenant. Guys, I want you to think for a second. You all know Christians in this church and outside this church. How often do we take stock of what the new covenant is? How often do you hear Christians talking about the new covenant? 
We talk about salvation, we talk about grace, we talk about heaven, we talk about all sorts of stuff, but very rarely have I ever heard people discussing and breaking apart and understanding the new covenant. Some might say, well, I can't find this phrase covenant community in my Bible. And you are absolutely right. But it seems to me that there's no better phrase in this day and culture to help differentiate the church and communicate what the church is to be just like there is no better word than Trinity, which is also not in the Bible, to explain the nature of God. Let me explain. To fully understand, we must link the Old and New Testaments together. And we as evangelicals sometimes shy away from this because we're so worried about moving grace out of the way and putting law in place. But guys, that's not what you're doing when you read the book. How many of you pick up a novel by Grisham, let's say, and you go, well, the first half, it must not be important for the second half right? We have to understand the two. We have to understand how they're linked. And when you link them, you'll realize that the Greek word translated as church in the New Testament is the word ekklesia. Everybody say ekklesia. Ekklesia, okay? I make fun of my friend down in Eugene who named his church ekklesia. I'm like, you couldn't come up with anything more original, right? Uh, Our church is church, right? Now, obviously, it's Greek, so it's original uh, to us in English, but it's ekklesia, Okay? And it's very linguistically connected to the Old Testament Hebrew word kahal. Everybody say kahal. Now, you might think, Hans, you're just trying to show off that, you know, you know these languages or whatever. Actually, I don't know them all that well. Uh, you know, you could talk to a lot of people that know them a whole lot better than I do. But here's the reality of what I'm trying to tell you. This isn't just a fancy pastoral trick. I'm trying to show you that these two words are massively connected. Kahal is not just any old assembly. Whenever the people of Israel were assembled, it was under the common Mosaic covenant in which they lived and existed as the covenant community of God's people. One of the things to understand about covenant is that a covenant always brings about a community. That's why you can't understand community without understanding covenant. And in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, okay, so the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, and then a bunch of Greeks went back and translated it into Greek, And that was probably, most likely, what Jesus would have been reading uh, reading out of was the Greek Septuagint. It definitely was what Paul was reading out of, okay? Um, The the Greek Septuagint, the translators took the word kahal and translated it into ekklesia. In other words, most translators agree that when you see the word ekklesia in the New Testament and it's translated as church, it has the same intention as the word kahal did in the Hebrew in the Old Testament. Have I lost you yet? Okay. Now you're thinking, this is so boring. Well, here's how you put it together. It seems to me that the various New Testament authors were intending to communicate the church as the new covenant community of God's people. No longer under the Mosaic covenant, but now under the new covenant established by the head of the church, Jesus Christ. And as Christians, we are all living within this new covenant, both individually and corporately as a community. And remember what that word corporate means? It comes from the Latin corpus, which means body. So when I say the word corporately, I'm not talking about money or an organization. I'm talking about bodily, both individually and bodily. But it sounds weird, so I say corporately. Okay? And so you can see why last week I kept using the phrase covenant community at the beginning of each part of the definition of the church. The church is the covenant community of God's people to which I belong and to whom I submit, in which the relationships of leaders, others, and myself are in co-equal submission under Jesus, with whom I am agreeing to pursue the purposeful process of sanctification. Okay, we went through that last week. You can go back and listen to that in depth. 
But Hans, you might lovingly say, and I do mean lovingly, I thought that the new covenant was just between me and Jesus. I thought it was just me and Jesus. And in one sense, you would be correct. Because in order to see the body, you have to see the individual parts. The new covenant brings you into relationship with Jesus personally, and that should never, ever be forgotten. Amen? Amen. We thank God for that. But it is just as important to understand that Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension inaugurated a community. It brought about a group of people that would eventually be fully restored and given eternal life in God's kingdom. His life, his death, his resurrection and ascension has both individual and communal implications. So look with me at Jeremiah 31 and you'll see what I mean. Go back to the Old Testament with me to Jeremiah 31. If you get to Psalms, you've gone too far. Go back to the right. Jeremiah 31 and we're going to be in verse 31. Give me an amen when you get there. This is perhaps the most explicit Old Testament statement of the new covenant that would come. So let's take a look at it. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. And remember that Lord is in all caps, which means in the Hebrew, it is the tetragrammaton, the name of God, Yahweh. Behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Okay, question. Question and answer time, okay? Now, this one, you're going to just kind of think to yourself here, but get ready, okay? Who is this covenant between? Well, it's between the Lord, Yahweh, and the house of Israel. It's the corporate nation. He says, I will be their God, and they will be my... What's that word? People, plural. A community, not just individuals. Now, what are the obligations under which the two parties covenant? The law of God placed on the hearts of the people. Now, this is not the Mosaic law, guys. You've got to understand in the New Testament when it says law, it's not abrogating or removing all law. What it is saying is we're no longer under the Mosaic law. We still are under the law of God. Go back and listen to all the Isaiah teachings. We're under the law of righteousness and justice, the law of Abraham, Right? What God requires to run his world in shalom and in love. That's why when they said, what is, the greatest, uh, what is the greatest law? He didn't go, oh, don't worry about those anymore. Not a big deal. No, he said, there are two. What are they, guys? What are the greatest commandments? Love God with all your heart, soul, and strength. What's the second one? Love your neighbor as yourself. He says, upon these hang all the rest of them. In other words, if you get those, if you understand those, and we talked about those in the language of righteousness and justice in Isaiah, he says, you get the law of God. And that's why the Bible says that sin is lawlessness. So us as Christians going around saying, oh, we're not under law anymore, it's all grace. Guys, we're actually preaching a false gospel. Sin is lawlessness. Grace is a removal of the Mosaic law, but staying under the law of God. I know I just blew like half your mind. You're like, oh my gosh, I don't even understand Christianity anymore. 
that's what's been going on for the last year. A lot of folks are going, I don't understand the Bible because you've grown up under a false notion of what grace actually means. Grace is room to repent. It's not room to keep breaking the law. Well, we'll talk about that more next time. In this law of righteousness and justice, the loving God was telling us we need to operate in his kingdom, in his love. And so Jesus comes along and he says to us as the church, in fact, when he started the church, the night of his death, or the, excuse me, the night of his arrest, he's eating a meal, the last supper with his disciples. And he says, and likewise, the cup after they had eaten, he says, Jesus says, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus is saying, Jeremiah 31, 31, for anyone who's paying attention, it just started, and you're in it, right? The new covenant was very, very important to him. And this covenant was with the leaders of the new remnant of the true Israel, the church. They were Jews, and he was making the church begin with them. And so that is why Paul calls them and the church that is growing the Israel of God. This is Galatians 6.16. And Paul says, And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. What he's saying is not that the church has replaced Israel. In fact, it's a moot point in my opinion. Everybody who argues about whether replacement theology is the church replaced Israel, they're not reading their Bibles. The church is the fulfillment of the pledge to Israel. God is faithful to Israel because he's brought about the church. And so there is neither Jew nor Gentile. There is simply the community of God underneath his covenant love. That is the truth of what the Bible teaches. So rather than remove Israel, Israel is the base. The church was grafted in, and because of that, Israel, is, Israelites can be grafted back into the community of God. And in the days of Abraham, when they made covenants, they would do what was called cutting covenants. And there are a number of traditions that I praise God that they weren't prescriptive, but they were only descriptive in the Old Testament. Shane and I have joked before, as uh, many of us in leadership have, that we're really glad as men that we no longer have to shake on it the way they did back in those days, where they would put each other's hand on each other's thigh, right? And the whole point was, was that if you break this faithfulness of this covenant, you can cut off my children, so to speak, Right? Sam, aren't you glad we don't do that anymore, right? Welcome to this church. Do you want a covenant with us? That's what we're going to do at our first membership meeting, just so you know, right? No, all right, we got zero members, including the pastor. He's out, right? I'm glad we don't do some of those things. Well, one of the things that they did was they cut covenant. Another one I'm really glad that we don't do, you know. Kelly and I need to cut covenant, and so we take our cat and slice it in half and lay it on the floor and walk between it. No, that would be very odd, right? Don't do that at your community group. Cutting covenant was where you would take animals and you would slice them in half. You'd lay both sides down and the two parties of the covenant would walk between it. In other words, saying to one another, I will hold myself accountable to this covenant and if I should not, then you can destroy me as you have destroyed these animals. There's a great example in, uh, in uh, Genesis 15 between Abraham and God and this is how they cut covenant. Well, the reality, guys, is that in Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection three days later, Jesus fulfilled the role as the sacrifice that was at the core of the covenant between God the Father and his people. In other words, we cut covenant with the Father through the blood of Jesus Christ. And the good news is not only that he died in our place and acted as our atoning sacrifice, our substitutionary atonement for our sin, 
That is absolutely true. And the gospel is certainly not less than that. If you miss that, you miss the gospel. But it is also good news that he has sent his Holy Spirit into our hearts so that those that are his might hold themselves accountable as people to live within the bounds of the covenant. Without his grace, we could do nothing. And it would be a lame attempt at white-knuckling righteousness for us to try. But with his grace, with his Holy Spirit, together we can grow into his image in a way that abides within the new covenant in which the Spirit is writing the holy law of God upon our hearts together. So every time we do communion together as a local body, we are not doing a magic ritual. What we are doing is we are remembering the new covenant under which all of us who call ourselves Christians exist in relationship with Christ and in relationship with one another. As part of the global church and within our local expression of the greater church, we are communicating that we know that it's not just Jesus and me, it's Jesus and us, and that us extends beyond the walls of Mission Fellowship. So why do I use covenant community? I'm not going to beat that dead horse anymore. Hopefully it's pretty obvious. So then what about covenant community and covenant membership? What's the biblical basis for covenant membership within the covenant community? Where do we get that? Well, look with me, if you're still in Jeremiah, at verse 32, and notice what language God uses to describe Israel and himself. In verse 32, at the end there, he says, the covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. He uses the word husband to describe himself. The idea of God being the husband and his people being the wife is a very strong picture throughout Scripture, is it not? Yeah, is it not? It is. When we look at it in the New Testament, one of the best places to go is to go to Ephesians chapter 5. And here's what it says up on the screen, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 28 through 32. Paul is trying to describe what the church is, and he uses almost the exact same language. In the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself. Good tip for you guys. There you go. Love your wives well. Life will go well for you. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ in the church. Okay, so he's comparing two things. He's comparing the marriage covenant and the new covenant between Christ and the church. Now, guys, I want you to think with me for a second. I'm going to use some terminology that theologians use just to help paint a picture here. When you've got these two pictures, the picture of marriage and the picture of Christ and the church, which one is the more ultimate reality? That's the phrase they use to describe it. The more ultimate reality. What is the thing that will last for all eternity? Will your marriage last? If you're Mormon, maybe, because that's what they believe, because they have to provide spirit children, right? That's not biblical. That's heresy. What the Bible says is for the resurrection... People will neither marry nor be given in marriage, but they're like the angels in heaven. 
one of the things that's been so interesting to me is how many people have brought up, Hans, you're trying to make out this covenant as if it's like a marriage covenant or something. You're trying to put it on the level of marriage. There, how are you doing that? Well, guys, because the Bible does. And in fact, the Bible raises the relationship between brothers and sisters in Christ above marriage. Go read it for yourself. I'm not making this up. Every one of you is like, Hans, that's weird and gross. No, guys, that's because of the American cultural religion that we call Christianity. It's not actually what the Bible says. It's what we've made it to be. The highest form of relationship in the Greco-Roman world was between a brother and a sister. It wasn't between parents and children or husband and wife. That is why the word, the word in the Greek, adelphoi, that is used for brothers and sisters that Paul uses throughout the New Testament is so impactful he was trying to get the church to realize that a new community, a new family had been created when they came to Christ. Now we all go, oh, that's cultish, right? The second I start talking about this, people start throwing around the word cult left and right, guys. A cult locks the doors and keeps you in. You're free to go at any point in time, right? A cult is one that says, don't talk to anyone outside of our church. Guys, be free to go talk to anyone outside our church. I will introduce you to uh, professors up at Western and you can talk to them and see if I'm full of it. Okay? The reality of what this says is that the thing that will last is brother and sister. Okay, so Hans, are you trying to relegate marriage to a low level and it's not important? No, 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 not at all. But hopefully what this does is this makes you reorder your relationships with your brothers and sisters in Christ. It makes you reorient your relationship with your spouse because if not, it should. Because what we must understand is that our relationship with our spouse, it will only last eternally, in so much as our spouse is first and foremost our brother or sister in Christ. That's why I get so worried when people are like, ooh, I met this romantic person and I'm so happy and excited. Oh, are they a believer? No, but it's not that big of a deal. Yeah, it is. You love them so much that you want to be with them for like 40 years and then watch them go into hell while you go into heaven. Is that a great idea? It makes absolutely no sense from an eternal perspective, but for that person in the temporal, they're like, no, all I care about is the temporal. Well, you're not actually acting as a believer in that moment, guys. The thing that will last is the relationship with brothers and sisters. And I am so thankful that Kelly is first and foremost, before she's my friend, before she's my wife, before she's the mother of our kids, before she's my lover, all of those things are awesome. But she's first and foremost my sister in Christ that I will one day have to present as pure and holy before Jesus Christ. And wives, you don't get off the hook either. Your husband is first and foremost your brother in Christ that you will have to present as holy and blameless before Jesus Christ one day. If we look at the word, it makes total sense. Go with me to Ephesians 5, and I'm just going to do a little quick exercise here. Go to Ephesians 5, that section, verses 28 through 32. And while you're doing that, let me put this caveat here. I am not saying your marriage is not important. The church is the, is the organization, is the institution that should protect and love marriage and make sure it works properly. And so marriage is extremely important. Don't hear me saying marriage is not important. What I'm asking is that we keep marriage as a high priority and then maybe reprioritize how we view our relationships with brothers and sisters in Christ to a higher level. Look with me at the section in chapter 5, starting in verse 22. Why don't you call out to me? Tell me what the header in your Bible before that section says. Throw some out to me here. 
Wives and husbands. Wow, that was resounding. Nice job, okay? Wives and husbands, okay? So we're obviously talking about wives and husbands here. But here's the, the thing. What leads into that? What is the, the uh, predetermined thought? Look at verse 21. Everybody read it out with me. What does it say? Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Paul is basing the idea of a loving, submitted, equal marriage out of what greater ideal? Submission to each other within the church. In other words, if you don't get relationships within, within the church, it's no wonder that your marriage sucks. I actually said this in the midst of one of my classes recently. Everybody was debating how, how marriage has gotten so far off track where wives don't know what it is to lovingly submit, which means to give your emotions, your feelings, your heart to your husbands. It doesn't mean be under their control. If, ladies, if you have a husband who's like, do as I say, come talk to me afterwards because you're in an abusive relationship and we seriously need to help you figure that one out. Okay? That's not what submission means. Submission means I give my whole heart to my husband. And husbands, what's your job? To create a loving, safe environment for them to be able to give their heart to you. That's why 1 Peter says, live with your wives in an understanding way. And so that idea is not the base from which we understand how the church works. It's actually the other way around. And so I said to my classmates, I said, guys, we are the problem. The pastors and the church are the problem as to why marriages are failing because we have not created an environment in which people can be trained up in what loving equal submission is. So when they step into marriage, they have to kind of go for broke on their own. And then the church doesn't help them at all in understanding it. And so what I'm telling you is that Paul, right here, you can see it in your own Bibles, he bases the idea of a loving relationship in marriage out of the relationship in the church. I love the way that the Bible captures this idea of all of us together in a body and the importance of those relationships of brother and sister. Uh, this is what the Bible Project drew it as on their little video, right? I love how Jesus is always smiling in their videos, right? Jesus is the head of a new humanity. And this one body that's pictured here, this is supposed to be all the Christians in the world because we as a body, Laveau in Haiti and Marcel in Burkina and across the world, all the people that are meeting in the name of Jesus, we're all one body. But as we talked about last week, the way that we participate in the one global body is to participate within your one local body. In other words, some of those people aren't going to be able to relate to other people that are extremely far away from them. But the way they can participate is within their own local body. If we've entered into the new covenant with Christ by his blood, then we're called to be a covenant community made up of covenant members, members within the covenant. And this is why Romans 12.4 puts it this way. This is the ESV. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. The NIV puts it this way, that last line, and each member belongs to the others. We're called to be a covenant community made up of covenant members. We have relationships with lots of Christians from lots of locales and churches. All of us have relations outside this church with Christians, and that is awesome, and you should keep those. But we also need to realize that within our own local body, there is a heightened responsibility that we should have for one another. In other words, my brothers and sisters who are outside this body, I'm so thankful that they're Christians, but they're responsible for the people in their body, and I'm responsible for the people in mine. 
And that's why the prioritization is slightly different. I still love them. I still hang out with them, but they're not my responsibility. And it's not just because I'm a pastor. It's because I'm a member of this community. So then what is the application within mission? What's the application within mission? Well, dear brothers and sisters, the mission family covenant that we have introduced to you is not for the purpose. Please hear this. It's not for the purpose of wagging our finger at you saying, keep it or else. That's not why we did it. It's not so we can have a power struggle. It's not so we can abuse you. It is not meant to call you to white-knuckled holiness just simply living by the letter of the law. And it is definitely not meant to be a contract. What it is, is it's all of us agreeing, covenanting to a way of life that reflects the covenant faithfulness of Christ. The obligations contained within it are not laws that you must keep to be saved or even to stay in good graces with your God or with your leadership. What they are is they're areas of submission that Christ and his disciples placed on the church at all times and in all places for holding ourselves individually accountable to following Jesus as part of his body. The obligations within the covenant document are a boundary line that helps us as leadership discern when one within our flock is fading away from a closeness with Christ and his people so that we might lovingly exhort that person to stay away from the deceitfulness of sin and reciprocate the loving faithfulness of Christ. It is not a wall to keep you in. If you willingly walk away from Christ and one another, there is nothing that we can do. It simply allows us the chance to try and exhort you to pull away from that path. It's also not a wall to keep others out. It is a way for us to properly affirm someone who desires to be a part of the body of Christ at mission. So rather than being a herd of cats that run around doing whatever we want, we can come together as one group prioritizing the mission of making disciples and evangelizing the world. In the Mosaic law, it was the job of the priests to hold the people accountable according to the letter of the law. But as members of the new covenant, as we looked at last week, we are all now what's called a priesthood of believers. Raise your hand if you are a priest of the new covenant. Every one of you that is a Christian should be raising your hand. So we are the ones that serve one another based off of the conviction of the Holy Spirit that resides in each of us individually and corporately as a body. And this is why Paul tells the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians that they are to be ministers of the new covenant to one another. Look with me at 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And look at verses 1 through 6 with me. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again, or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, he says, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ towards God, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything. That's coming from us. But our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. 
For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. The word ministers there means servants. And servants based on the letter of, not on the letter of the Mosaic Law, but based on the motivation of the Holy Spirit that drives us to respond to the love of Christ by obeying His commands. The Bible is very clear that we are to be ministers of God to one another under this new covenant. And in this context, what was happening was there were believers from Jerusalem that had brought letters of recommendation from their elders. And they were coming in and they were dismantling what Paul was doing. They were contradicting him. And Paul's response is to say, guys, look at the fruit of your life. Look at you, the people of Corinth, and what you've produced in repentance. You show that our ministry is true. This fruit was not produced by enforcing law on someone, but by calling out to the Holy Spirit that dwells within each one of us to live according to the commands of Christ. And really, this exercise of our leadership to introduce a covenant to you is nothing more than that. It's calling out to the Holy Spirit within you, calling you to obey and to follow, not by white knuckling, but in corporate unity and responsibility. Now, some might say that the covenant we have introduced, man, that's the letter of the law. That's why you put it on paper and it's nine pages. Have you seen me? I'm verbose, guys. Sorry. The reality is I didn't even write the thing. I took a template from another church that we trust a, a ton, a church down in Dallas called The Village, run by Matt Chandler, and we put our language and some of our pieces in it. And it was a little bit longer, but the reality is, guys, is, man, there are churches using this kind of covenant all over the place. And the reason that folks believe it's the letter of the law or a contract, which it is absolutely not, is that we don't understand the difference between contract and covenant. Let me take you through just a couple of things here, and then I'm almost done. First, notice this with me. The difference between a covenant versus a law or a contract in its purpose. A law or contract is to work within a social order to serve as an instrument of maintaining freedom and security. Okay, it's part of a society, social law. What a covenant is, is to create a community where none existed before by establishing a common relationship to a common Lord. Now, these are not my definitions. They're taken from a comparison of ancient Near East covenant and ancient Near East law done by a theological historian named Mendenhall. But I think this is really awesome for what we're going through. The purpose is totally different. The basis of a law or a contract versus a covenant a law or a contract stems from social fear. And guys, it's amazing how many of us respond out of fear because we've been conditioned by our society that anytime obligations are on a piece of paper, we have to fear how we're going to get uh, taken to the cleaners. That's what most of you, when you saw the covenant, you have to admit to yourselves, you were like, <gasps> how are they going to screw me over? That's what the church does, right? Leadership in churches, they screw people over. Yeah, a lot of them do and have to some of you. That's not our intent. A covenant comes by gratitude, by way of a response to the grace that has already been received from the common Lord. It's to say, we want to fulfill our obligations because you've already been so gracious to us. And guys, you aren't making a covenant to the leadership. The leadership and the congregation are together making a covenant to Christ. That's what this is. Thirdly, the enactment or the way it starts. A law or a contract is enacted by competent social authority outside the parties involved, like the courts or legislature. And it's binding upon each individual party by virtue of their status in the society. A covenant is self-binding through voluntary action in which each party covenanting willingly accepts the obligations presented. And so signing this covenant is agreeing that we will indeed hold ourselves accountable to this way of life. Guys, we cannot enforce it. Do you understand that? 
right? I'm not going to come beat down your door and stand in it. I'm six foot ten, do as I say, right? That's just ridiculous. We can't enforce it if a person is not willing to hold themselves accountable by it. We can't go get the courts. We can't go get legislature. That's not our intent. The covenant simply states that our common agreement is that we will all abide under the obligations of what it is to live within a Jesus-led community. There is no party that will come to enforce it. I want you to understand that. I'm not going to beat down your door. I might talk with you on a Sunday and say, man, walk away from the deceitfulness of sin. And if you say, no, Hans, I won't, then I will definitely cry. And I will be sad. And I will pray for you like crazy. And then I will go to the congregation of members and I'll say, guys, this person has willingly decided that they no longer want to oblige under the covenant. And we will sadly mourn the fact that that person has chosen by their own actions to walk away, but we will never force someone out. That's a covenant. So hopefully you can see that while covenant membership, forming a covenant community, is not explicitly stated in the Bible in one or two verses, it is at the core of who God's people are. We are a people that together join in unity to voluntarily sit in submission to Christ as King and to help one another in that pursuit. And this idea of covenant, guys, it's as old as the church itself. In the first century, Pliny the Younger, a historian, wrote to Emperor Trajan, speaking of Christians, and here's what he said. Notice the words I'm going to emphasize. He says that Christians in that day, in the first century, they were accustomed to meet on a fixed day before dawn and sing responsively a hymn to Christ as to God and to bind themselves by oath, not to some crime, but to not commit fraud, theft, or adultery not falsify their trust, nor to refuse to return a trust when called upon to do so. They entered into a voluntary agreement with one another that they would indeed represent Christ correctly. It was spoken and it was agreed to. Guys, we can't depend upon do you show up at church as an attendee to know whether or not you want to be bound within covenant with one another. During the Great Awakening and the Second Great Awakening in this country, the, this form of covenant that we're putting before you, this form of covenant membership, grew by leaps and bounds as the movement of the Holy Spirit caused people to step into covenant commitment with one another in Christ. I'll give you some uh, quotes from some of those pastors from that day next week. And so by agreeing to the mission family covenant with one another, what we are stating clearly to each other is that we are agreeing to pursue the purposeful process of sanctification with one another. We are acknowledging that these are the people for whom I am responsible and who are responsible for me. These are the people with whom I primarily, not exclusively, hear me there, not exclusively, but primarily will participate in my local expression of the greater global body of Christ with. And so it seems to me that covenant membership within a covenant community has a strong biblical basis, even if we cannot directly point to an explicit statement in one or two verses. But guys, the second reason that I believe that covenant commitment is so helpful in covenant membership is not just that I see it as biblical, but also because I see it as extremely practical. And next week, the last week of this, hopefully, uh, we will go in depth through the ways in which I believe that covenant membership is extremely practical, as well as the reasons around switching to a form of church that is this. This is our new structure. Jesus ruled elder-led and congregationally responsible. You know the only difference of this structure from what we were before, take out that last line. That was it. And now we are going to operate as a congregation with many voices leading this church. 
One of the main reasons I want to go into the practical benefits next week is that I firmly believe that a spoken and affirmed commitment to one another creates a safe environment in which so many of us need to grow by making mistakes that don't lead to abandonment and learning how to heal from past relational harm. You need a safe relationship to do so. And so I want this to be a place of healing and growth. I realize, and our leadership group realizes, that in enacting these changes as a church, and even after sharing some of our motivation with you, some of you may still want to wait to step into this covenant. And guys, if that's you, we want you to know that you can take as much time as you need. Please do not feel pressured. You can still attend and listen and check out our community. But maybe you are a person that has made up your mind that this is unnecessary or nonsensical. Or maybe some of you may realize that you agree with it, but you want what we're talking about, and you realize it's probably going to happen with another community in which you are already plugged in. If any of this is the case for you, as I said the last two weeks, we want to lovingly listen to you, bless you, pray for you, and send you off to be part of whatever community in which you feel you will grow in obedience. Part of the healing for so many of you that you have uh, that you need because you have seen bitter splits from churches and separations. Part of the healing is for you to know that while there are lots of wrong ways to leave a church, there is truly a way to part ways as mature disciples that recognizes that while we may not be part of one another's local church body, we are definitely part of the greater global body of Christ together. We're part of the kingdom. And so before we finish off the topic of the practical reasons behind covenantal membership and we look at the biblical and practical reasons behind congregational authority next week, I want to shepherd you through a wonderful example of an honorable way to part ways with the church while still remaining together in the kingdom. And to do so, I'm going to have Shane come up and help me lead you through this. Come on up, Shane. For six years, Shane and his family have helped guide the opinion of this church in matters of justice and in matters of living life together. And one of the most beautiful things about the two of us is that, as you can see, we're completely different men who have completely the same motivation. Shane has uh, often been the good cop on days where I've had to be the bad cop. Shane has been the fun guy when I have been the not fun guy. And I'm so thankful for him and his family. They have changed my heart and my walk, and they've changed this church. But today, Shane has some news that is good, but it is also extremely bittersweet that I want him to be able to share with you. Take it away. Well, I think that uh, Hans's use of the terms abrogate and verbose were incredible today. I enjoyed that very much. Patrick made me take out um, one of the words that he said nobody would know when I had him read my manuscript, so, yeah. Uh, so, I don't really want to be up here right now. Um, I don't like to talk. I, I like to sing. It's much, it's much better that way. Um, but the, the uh, let's see, how do I, yeah. So, I'm going to be stepping down from leading worship, and ultimately our family is going to be fellowshipping elsewhere on Sunday mornings. Um, and I want to make sure that my church mission understands a little bit of our heart 
and also can understand Hans's and our leadership team's hearts because Hans is one of my closest friends and I love our leadership team and I love this church and my family loves this church. Um, you know, with the, <clears throat> I have been kind of, I'm always the weird exception to the rule of the leadership group generally. That's just kind of how, how it's been. Uh, some of that's my, my issues, uh, my personalities and my opinions. Um, but with the move to the covenant membership, I think overall, I think it's great. I think the last three weeks have been awesome and completely reaffirming that Hans and the leadership group are hearing God and moving mission in the direction it's supposed to go. Unfortunately, part of that um, process for us, for me, for the last couple of months, uh, when I, I had lunch with Michael McEwen, because uh, we, ha we haven't been attending uh, community groups forever, because I can make excuses about our lives being crazy and all of that, and that's absolutely part of it, but it also has to do with priorities outside of Mission Fellowship. Um, but I had lunch with Michael, and Michael kind of talked to me a little bit about it, and I was like, oh, okay, yeah, I don't know, that's something I'm super interested in, but whatevs. Because that's kind of the opposite. I'm not super uh, wordy with written form, talking totally. I'm rambling forever. <laughs> but um, I'm just kind of more that yang to Hans's yin or yin to the yang when it comes to thoughtful and well-researched and thought out. I'm kind of that other guy that's like, yeah, whatever, that'll be fine. Um, but then I saw the document and I was like, oh, shoot. It's a lot more um, intensive and thought out and prayed over and considered than I originally intended. And there was a couple of things in it that I felt like I can't, I can't say that, yes, I'm going to be able to agree to covenant in a way that I should as, as a worship leader in this church. And that broke my heart. And it's really hard for me to have to kind of admit that to myself a little bit, because I'd like to be able to do everything well, and I just don't. Um, but for us, you know, we have this for a long time, we've tried to kind of mesh our spheres of life. Um, and for those of you that know me for a while, um, that have been at church for a while, you know, we've had a lot of the, the let's see, how do I put it? The Witham crew extended have been a part of mission for seasons. And uh, ultimately that sphere of life and that family who I've been covenant, I, I am in covenant community. I mean, I'm in covenant relationships with people that are not at mission anymore. And, uh, and while some of you, we totally consider you part of our community and covenant, uh, covenant community with you. And I, I don't want that to change. I also recognize that by our choice of stepping down and moving into um, a different fellowship to be with our other group of people that we're in covenant with, clearly there will be disruption in our relationships. And clearly there, there's priorities that have to be shifted on, on both sides. Um, and one thing that I, I need to say to all of you, like I. I really, I'm a, I'm a very interpersonal kind of person. That's why I give you all hugs and handshakes and high fives and varying degrees. Sometimes I smack Kyle on the rear because 
It's not, it's not, a, it's not a bad thing. Kyle knows. Keep them coming. <laughs> um, I really wanted to be able to talk to each of you individually. And yet I knew that that's really not a, a possibility. Uh, a couple weeks ago, Hans and I sat down, and I really wanted to just ignore and just, just like pretend like it wasn't happening. And I even said to my wife, I said, you know what, I'm, make, I'm making them kick me out. I'm going to make them give me a giant ultimatum, and I'm going to say I can't do it, and then it'll be all their fault. And, uh, and now that was like tongue-in-cheek, a joke, because I love this man, and this is not his fault. My choice to leave is not his fault. And I hope that for those of you that have relationship with me and those of you that love me, because I love all of you for varying degrees. Some of you I don't really even know. But, um, I know and I want, you know, I'm not, I'm not in school. I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a counselor. So Hans, if I say something hurtful, you just you know, say Shane's an idiot. <laughs> but I want, I want to be able to say that I'm sorry to you, the hurt that my decision may cause you, the pain that that decision may cause you, and any feelings of rejection or abandonment that you may feel from me saying I can't be all in here because I need to be all in there. I'm really sorry. <clears throat> and I hope you can forgive me for that. You're, do you're doing good. Here you go. I thought they were going to be for me, but there Seems you go. Gross. <clears throat> so, Thanks, Carolina. Oh, thanks. Now we're good. Yeah. A little trade like that. There we go. Um, so I hope you can forgive me for that. Um, it has been a privilege and an honor to get to worship with you guys on a weekly basis for the last five and a half, six years, however long it's been. It really has. I love Jesus and I love people. Amen. And I love you guys very much. And I know you can sit and you can do all the thought process of going, oh, there's got to be something more to this. <laughs> Shane and Hans must have gotten a fight. There's something bad. Man, that's not the case. It really is not the case. It's the reality, and I thought Hans said it really well last week. He talked about those concentric circles of the church and how it filters down to mission fellowship ultimately as that smallest little circle. And the harsh reality and the hard thing for my family to have to put into a balance and figure out what we were going to do with is the fact that our last circle didn't get quite as small based on where parents and grandparents and aunties and uncles and lifelong committed covenanted relationships are at right now, that they're not with us. And... Uh, the other thing that I thought was so great is it made me kind of have to stake, take some stock in what and how I was living in community. And as you well know, for the past two years, up until June, we had a sibling group of three, super high maintenance, super high volatility in my house, uh, lots of issues, um, lots of struggles. And great excuse, right? Great excuse to not be involved as much and honestly, totally realistic. Like literally we tried to go to a community groups a couple times. It, that was not happening with, with that group of kids. And the first year that we had them in our house was awesome. The second year was 
basically three steps below survival. We really weren't surviving. We were just breathing. It was really, really hard. And I know that my wife makes it look amazingly easy and my kids make it look amazingly easy. And I cover whatever is super hard with humor and fun. Really? Yeah, it's amazing how I do that. Um, so I know, I know that maybe that wasn't as obvious to my sphere of life around me. For some of you, you know. You know how hard it was because you were at our house. You were helping us out. You were giving us breaks. And for those of you that were there for us, I am eternally grateful to that. Um, but as I looked at the covenant document and I looked at the direction and the trajectory that mission was headed, and as I had to kind of realistically accept the fact that for a season, and Hans has hit on it the last couple weeks, for a season, I had a very prominent position or role in the trajectory of the church. And I very distinctly and purposefully over request after request after request, respectfully declined to be more involved in that leadership capacity because really I was at a place where, hey, I wanna come, I'll, I'll lead worship and I'm gonna hang out and love people, but I'm not called to vocational ministry anymore. And, uh, and I'm okay with that and I'm comfortable with that. Um, some of you might judge me for that, but you know, that I can't, I can't, I can't really affect that. Um, but I thought it was so great because ultimately I looked at my life over the last couple of years and it was really apparent that while I had this pseudo covenanted relationship at mission and this pseudo covenanted relationships with the rest of our sphere of life, we just were kind of floundering in the middle. And this kind of did draw a bit of a line in the sand to say, okay, Shane, what are you gonna do? And so it's with, it's with that, hopefully that explains it. And, yeah. Um, it's with that, with a super heavy heart, like, and I, and I, just so you know, a couple weeks ago when Hans and I sat down, I, I For said- For three and a half hours. It, it was a long time. <laughs> um, when, when we sat down, I said, dude, this is where I'm at. This is how I'm feeling. These are the issues. These are the, the things I'm coming to these conclusions on. What do I do? And while I know that he may not agree 100% and would like me to just, you know, suck it up maybe, <laughs> I, I know my daughter said that that's one, that would be one option for us. We could just nice word. suck it up and just, you know, whatever. Um, I felt like there was an understanding and a support and he did not have a magic silver bullet for me to fix it all and to make it all work out and I really wanted him to. But yeah. as he'll be the first to admit, our pastors don't always know every single thing. In fact, we don't know <laughs> very much at all. Let me just throw a couple things in here. Um, I wanna make explicitly clear, there is no sin involved whatsoever on the part of Shane or his family or any of our leadership. Um, I also want to say that, um, hey, you got to be the bad cop. I got to be the good cop for a sec. This is cool. Yay. I also want to say, here's the good news. We are absolutely still amazing friends. And we've been joking about how we probably have communicated more 
through this whole thing than we have in the last six years on an individual basis, but uh, we are going to stay committed to them and they're going to stay committed to us from the capacity that they can and that we can. And so that means that this is still happening every month. And DHS, Treat Yourself, we are still going to partner with Malia as she takes the food over there. And we're still going to partner with them and care for them, right? In a couple of weeks, we're going to have Malia and Shane come back, um, and they're going to help us do the Haiti video that we haven't gotten a chance to show you yet, because uh, the next time we do a trip, Shane is definitely going to be going with us, right? Um, and so I want this, for those of you who've come from really bad situations and bad splits in the midst of churches, and you've seen lack of transparency with leadership, I want this to be the beginning of healing for you. We want to be as transparent as possible with you. In fact, a couple of you that have gone through some really bad trauma in churches, I, I made sure to try and stop you and tell you uh, recently, like, okay, this is going to be coming this Sunday. Please know that we're trying to be as transparent as possible. But I also want you to see that there's an honorable way to move on from a church. The reality is, guys, is that a lot of the folks who've left, unfortunately, have been dishonorable in the way that they've left our church, and it's been really heartbreaking and sad, and that's not because they're bad people or evil. It's because there's a lot of brokenness in relationship, and words are hard. <laughs> Amen? And so the reality is, is I'm so thankful for the Withams because this is heartbreaking for them, and at the same time, they love you enough to do this the right way. They would love you enough to be honorable and to speak the truth to you. And I just want to clarify really quick one thing that you said. You said um, there's a couple things that we disagree on uh, in the, the covenant. And just to be clear, that doesn't mean that you think that they're theologically inaccurate or bad. They're just a difference of ways of doing church, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I think, you know, doctrinally, theologically, Hans is super solid. The church's statement of belief, I absolutely agree with. Um, it's, yeah, no, just the little fine, it's those little fine details. And really, I know that I kind of, that was a rough transition. Really, the piece of it that is hard for me is when you get into those concentric circles of, of closing yeah. down the, the sphere. It's just that my sphere stays bigger. Yeah. And that's, that, that, I mean, that's, that's the difference that Absolutely. I'm speaking to. That's, Absolutely. yeah, not... Yeah. And, yeah, and that's part of why I've been so thankful for them. We have a tendency as human beings that when we disagree, what we do is we start to manipulate things so that we can back our opinion and make the other people look bad. And that is not at all what they're trying to do. And that's what's so funny about Shane and I is like, we can sit down and we can totally disagree. We've done it for six years on different things and we can still hug each other and walk away. And that's what the church is supposed to be, right? And so that's the reality of what we're trying to present to you today. And while this is extremely hard and it's heartbreaking, uh, for all of us, withams included, we want to do this in a way that um, glorifies Jesus. And so for those of you that might be sitting here going, oh man, I, I feel like Shane does. I think I, think I might need to, to head out. Uh, we want to open that door for you, not to shove you out of it, but to care for you. And a good way to do it, trust me, uh, for those of you that are introverts, you don't have to come up here on stage. Okay, that's not what we're talking about is the good way. The good way is that Shane talked with his elders. You know, Shane's older than, than me and, and Patrick, He's an old man, right? I'm an above 40 guy that he referred to earlier. And, I'm one of those. And yeah, he sat down with me, and then he later talked with Patrick face-to-face, -face and he said, guys, what do I do? And, and he was submitted to us, and I am so thankful for that. He had a conversation with his elders, 
and then we work through it together in a way that could be honoring to Jesus and to all of you and to the family. And so I'm so thankful for that. So hopefully you walk away today sad, yes, true, but with an understanding that this church is really committed, the leadership of this church is really committed, the Withams are really committed to serving and loving Jesus and following his commands as best we can. Uh, and we can keep doing that together. So hopefully this is a good thing in one way or another for you today. Uh, so I'm going to ask the, um, is there anything else you wanted to say, Shane? He'll want to give you hugs afterwards. And uh, afterwards, we'll also, the two of us are going to stay up here on stage. So if any of you have any questions, doesn't matter how deep or how hard they are, come up and ask us and we'll be happy to talk with you about I it. I do have one. I do have one yeah. thing. I don't know if I said this before, but for those of you who maybe know me a little better than others, and if you're sitting there today and you're mad or upset or all at all angry that you felt like I should have talked to you individually, know that that is something that Hans and I actually, we discussed. Mm -hmm. But I, I agree with and felt like Hans was correct in that we did not want, because of the way things have been and because of how some other folks have disappeared we did not want there to be weird um assumptions made if things got heard that oh shane's leaving the church or or whatever mm -hmm. without you hearing it from us yeah because it wasn't about hearing it from me and it wasn't about hearing it from hans it was about hearing it from us and i know some of my worship team you had to hear it from hans without me because i couldn't be there and i'm so sorry that i wasn't able to to make it there um it was for a good reason, yeah. but still, that is something that I just want for some of you who I've had coffee with and who I love, and for some of you that are like who I was 20-some years ago, I'm sorry that I didn't get to sit down with you individually, but now that the announcement has been made, you all know where I live, you all have my numbers, and I would be happy to get together with anybody to talk and to chat and, you know, all of that. So... And guys, this is why we have asked Shane to be an elder multiple times. And while it just makes me angry that he never said yes, uh, this is how a leader properly leaves the church right here. This is why he's a leader. And he will be a leader whether he ever has a title or not.